Hi, I'm Robbie Koenig, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast with fabulous Fabio. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm super excited to be chatting to the legendary tennis commentator, Robbie Koenig. You may recognize Robbie from these legendary commentary quotes. Oh, that's outrageous. <laughs> the guy is so talented, it's beyond a joke. Wow, what an angle. There's a ticket to the party. Robbie tells us all about his tennis days as a pro, how he became a commentator and also life as a commentator over the past 16 years. I really enjoyed this chat. It was loads of fun, got some great stories and the odd bit of tennis advice in there. Thank you very much for that, Robbie. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger. They make the awesome Slinger bag, which I've mentioned plenty of times here. If you head over to slingerbag.com, you can get all the information there. They're shipping to more countries than ever now. But here we go. Let's start chatting to Robbie. How are you? And welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks, uh, Fabio. Um, yeah, I've been listening to some of your chats uh, over the last few months. I've never actually been a big podcast guy until we uh, started to go into these lockdown scenarios. So um, COVID has inadvertently introduced me to podcasts over the last nine or 10 months. Nice. Well, we did get on the podcast bandwagon before COVID. We're on since 2019, so we didn't jump on when a lot of others jumped on, but no, the content's been great. And I must say thank you very much for your mentions on live TV regarding the, the Nick Kish, the Turner Grip episode, which was great. You enjoyed that one? I certainly did. And it's nuances like that within the sport that I found so fascinating. Um, obviously, when we're around it so much, I don't want to sound arrogant that we kind of know most of the stuff um, that we've heard on podcasts. So it's so refreshing when you come across something that is, you know, a lot more left field and, and a story that you've never heard before. And of course, Tourner Grips, I grew up with Tourner Grips. I'm older than most of these youngsters these days. Pete Sampras was uh, the same age as me, my ilk, and watching him do his Tourner Grips as a youngster in South Africa, they were uh, the grip to have. And the whole story behind it and the company was absolutely fascinating. I love nuggets of information like that. And I'm so glad you brought it to us. I know. No, it's great. It was a good story to tell. And yeah, the guys have sold a lot of Turner grips. And it's kind of funny. You either love Turner or you hate Turner. So you're either a white Wilson man or you're a blue Turner person. And you're definitely a, a blue Turner person. Actually, I wasn't. I couldn't afford Turner grips back in the day. Okay. <laughs> So I actually never played with them. And consequently, um, I used to get sponsored uh, by Wilson. And it was only recently that, you know, recently in, in relative terms that they bought out the white grip. But I used to play with anything else that I could afford. You use you use the grip four ways. I hope you realize that as well. So you, you put the grip on no. and then you switch it around so that the yeah. top half of the grip then becomes the bottom. 
And then once that's worn out, you switch the grip over and then you use the backside top and bottom. So when you're on a tight budget playing, um, you know, satellites back in the day and you're from South Africa, you, you maximize the, the time span of a grip and tornos were way out of my budget. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know the four way. This is the first time I've ever heard about using the four ways. That's, that's interesting. That is one of, I'll put that in, in the cost saving section of the futures traveling player. I tell you, Fabio, before we go on, I've got one more of those and I've got to give credit to Kevin Elliott, who was uh, obviously another top player, Grand Slam, a doubles champion from South Africa. And that was um, the old hose pipe that we used to use on our shoes. So because we used to drag our feet so much when we served and the courts that we played at, at uh, Westridge Park in South Africa, anybody who's been there will know that's like playing on coarse sandpaper. We used to wear out these shoes so quickly, Fabio, that we would get a hole just in the top of the shoe and we'd, we'd get a piece of hose pipe and we'd cut about an inch long and then we'd cut it two ways across the top. So you've just got this curved piece left and that would fit perfectly around the toe of the shoe. We'd add super glue on the corners and you'd get about two or three days out of that before it wore through. But of course, you've got a meter of hose pipe. So over the course of a month, that meter of hose pipe would basically save your shoes for another month. Wow, God, that's, that's another tip. I can't see the cool kids using that these days. Definitely not. Believe it or not, it was pretty cool at the time as a, as a cost saver. But yeah, my, my own kids even look at me sideways these days. Yeah, it's always when, when your parents tell you something. It's always about some cost saving measure for something. And you always, you just hide, you hide from the advice until you're older. And then you say, God, that was some great advice my parents were giving me. Too true. I was there any Irish players around when you were on in the early satellite tour? Owen Casey ring a bell at all? Well, there certainly was. Uh, the legendary Owen Casey was a good friend of mine. So um, we crossed paths a couple of times. I remember playing the Challenger in Dublin one year uh, when I first came across him and we ended up hitting... A lot of balls together and practicing quite a bit that week and some good memories. I think I made semis or finals there. So Ireland does hold some uh, good memories in my mind. Uh, I love the people. Uh, I think you guys have got the coolest accent in the world. So that's the only reason I agreed to do this podcast with you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And I, I, I must tell Owen, Owen's, a, Owen's the pro in my club. So, and he used to be an old coach of mine when I was a kid. So I, I'll tell him, I'll, uh, forward this podcast onto when it goes live and give him something to listen to now that he's not on court in lockdown. But speaking of lockdown and speaking, I want to hear a bit more about your tennis career and then how you moved into commentary. But before we get to that, how is quarantine in Australia treating you? It's fine, eh? Uh, no complaints from my side. I've gotten to a good routine. First couple of days, I had a bit of jet lag, but I didn't even bother trying to rectify it because there was no urgency. Shh. So I just slept as much as I could, got as many hours uh, on the pillow as possible. And then just the last couple of days, uh, a bit more normality. I'm coming up for halfway now. Uh, tomorrow morning, my time, it's um, 7 p.m. in the evening here on Friday. So tomorrow morning is my uh, start of my eighth day. So you're kind of over the hump, Fabio. Uh, Tennis Australia, you cannot believe the efforts to which they've gone. I've got a, I've got a bike in my room. One of the stationary bikes, they sent us some bands. Um, we get food packages uh, every other day with snacks and stuff over and above the meals that we get. And uh, I've just got myself into a good routine, um, getting up relatively late. And yeah, just 
doing some exercise, then doing some work, doing my prep for the ATP Cup and the Australian Open. Um, yeah, and, and doing some historical work as well. It gives me a chance to to watch a lot more video footage. Uh, I don't like to watch too much tennis when I'm at home and I've got time off. As much as I love this game and I absolutely adore it, sometimes I do like to get away from it. I will watch it if it's on TV, but it's nice to go and do some like specific analysis. So these sort of opportunities allow for that. And uh, I'm not a big movie watcher and I'm doing a fair bit of that too, watching some documentaries. I love the documentaries. I've just watched a Target documentary. I can recommend that if you haven't seen that. And this is a guy who, who never watches Formula One. I'm talking about never. And this drive yeah. to survive uh, on Netflix. Oh. I, I don't know if you've seen that. I mean, I'm I'm captivated by it. I have. It's really good. It. I'd. I was a big Formula One fan. It would have been big in my house. They're big Ferrari heads. Uh, growing up in an Italian family, and so it was always Formula One on the Sunday. But the past few years, I lost interest. But the drive to survive has definitely brought back the interest and just seeing what goes on the little battles going on all over the place is madness like really good show totally and i had no idea about that i could probably name one or two drivers in formula one i mean after watching the first series um yeah i know a whole lot more about it and and appreciate the sport a lot more and it's amazing what a bit of understanding about a, a sport can do for you right Oh, totally like it got me back into it and the second series is brilliant as well another great show that I just came across recently for for those listening and maybe for you is the, the Tottenham Hotspur show. I'm not sure the name. It's on Amazon Prime, who you know well, but it really gives you a good insight on what goes on behind a football team. I'm not sure. Have you seen that one? I have. I thoroughly enjoyed all of those on, on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm a, obviously a big rugby fan as well, so the All Blacks documentary was fantastic. Um, South Africa's just brought out a, a great movie about the World Cup winning team. So, yeah, that's where I'll absorb a lot of my energies uh, during this quarantine time. Yeah, no, they're really good. And tell me, you do you, so you say you do some historical tennis analysis. What exactly are you doing when you're looking back at some matches? So the biggest thing is like looking for plot points in matches so that when I'm commentating, I can be very specific about a match, let's say, between... Okay, let's say we're looking back at... Uh, the 2020 ATP Cup last year, because ATP Cup's coming up, you know, in, in about a week's time. And, you know, I'm just reminding myself about, say, Kyrgios versus Sitsipas match when they played last year, three tiebreaker sets. And I don't know if you remember the shot that Nick hit on match point, right? It was an unbelievable backhand return winner down the line in the third set tiebreaker to clinch it for Australia. So when you can give detail to commentary like that, I think it it helps bring back the memory of the viewer if they don't remember it. And I think it just shows specific knowledge from my side. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll make notes about that. You know, Nadal versus Djokovic, for example, in the finals. I've written here five or second set, 15-40, that volley, which was like a little John Fitzgerald topspin volley winner that he hit in the corner to save a uh, break point there. I mean, it was the most ridiculous shot you've ever seen. And again, so... It's stuff like that. Make the notes, keep it in the memory bank so that if I can have an opportunity to to recall a moment like that and make it relevant to a match that, say, Rafa is playing in front of me, um, it just creates better storytelling. I always did wonder how you guys 
could remember all that information because you come out with some great nuggets from time to time and you're like, oh, now I remember. So yeah, you're hitting the nail on the hammer there. It does allow then the viewer to go, God, I remember that shot now. But until you said it, you wouldn't have remembered. So a great job, a lot of a lot of research, um, a lot of research. We've done a lot of matches, to, a lot of great matches the past few years to watch. So I'm sure you're, you're kept busy. But getting, before we talk about commentary, let's go back to your, tennis career as you did mention to me the other day we were joking you said you got a bike you were I thought only the players got bikes I didn't know everybody else everybody got bikes so and you said I was a player tell me more about your early days as a as a player oh sure man uh first and foremost I love this game so much eh? Uh, I really do and I, I was never a standout junior especially until about the age of 15 uh, I was pretty average within my county or state as they would say in Europe or America, province in South Africa. And then um, things started to change a bit. For the first time, I discovered a little bit of fitness. Uh, I do driveway sprints. I do side to side on our veranda at home. And I did that for about three weeks. And I played two quite big junior tournaments in South Africa. And I remember losing in the final of one, having match points. And then I came, I drove from Joburg down to, uh, down to Durban, my hometown, and won the next one, beating some good players. In the uh, in the quarter semis and finals, and especially in the quarterfinals, I beat one of the top guys in the country, someone who I'd uh, never beaten before. And like the penny dropped, hey, Fabio. You know, if I do a little bit of fitness, gee whiz, it's made a big difference in my game. So how's about how's about I start doing a bit more of this? And I improved quite a bit from like 15 to 18. I became one of the top four or five players in the country, but still never stand out. I was the same vintage as Wayne Ferreira. Um, obviously we know how good Wayne was, what a great top tenner he was for about 10 years. Grant Stafford was another name, top 50 player for many years. Marcus Andruska, I want to say career high of maybe 30 in the world. And then there was myself and Kevin Elliott and a few other guys. Um, and right around the time I was thinking of going pro, I also had a, an option to go to university. Uh, I had two, two op- offers from University of Miami. And from having a brain cramp here, the one in Malibu <laughs> in California. And anyway, uh, I chose not to to go to college in the States. And I went pro only because the South African Tennis Federation um, had an additional sponsor. And it was always like the top four guys who traveled. Now, suddenly, they added another four onto the back of that. And um, I decided, okay, Pepperdine, that was the name of the university. Nice. Good college. And I went pro. And it was pretty good. Uh, the first couple of years, well, I did decently in singles and especially in doubles, which meant that m- my parents didn't have to fork out much money for me to travel back in those days. The coach was provided by the federation. And, you know, in the satellites, we were making enough money every week, basically to break even. So that's how things went for me. And then in 1992, a single started to go well. I qualified at a couple of tour events in the U.S. summer. I think I made third third round of Washington, beat some top 50, top 100 guys in that tournament. And things were going swimmingly. And then I got a knee injury. And I ended up being out of the sport midway through 93 and ended up being out for almost a year, two back-to-back operations. Then I came back, played, tried to play more singles, but never really had the game to to be a consistent top 100 player. And it just happened one year at the US Open, 1997. 
And it's probably quite apt that I, I mentioned Craig Talley at this point, given him in Australia. Craig Talley was coaching John, <laughs> John Lafney de Yaga, who was another South African. And I was looking to play doubles at qualies of the US Open and I couldn't find anyone. And I saw Craig standing in the play area and I went up to him and I said, Hey CT, um, is John Lafney around? And he said, actually, he's not. He's playing Huggy Bear, which was a very famous pro-am event that the guys played in the Hamptons where you could win a lot of money. And he was up there. He had lost, but he was hanging out with all the the hot shots there in in the Hamptons. I said, please phone him and see if he wants to play qualies. Just tell him it's me and I'm desperate to play. I lost in qualies of the U.S. Open and singles. And I was really at a crossroads in my career. Anyway, he phones him up. and he was going to stay there and not even play qualies. And he said, okay, because it's Robbie, I'll come down and, and I'll play with him. When I found out his ranking, Fabio, I realized that we were going to be the last guys in the qualies. There was about five minutes remaining. So I decided not to sign us in. And then with about 30 seconds, uh, the, the tournament official, their good friend of ours, yeah. Mike Lou, said, you know, any other sign-ins, this is going to be the, the last call before I rip the paper away. And I walk up there and I sign John Lafney and Robbie Koenig down there. And he pulls the paper away so nobody can switch. And, um, you know, that was a big turning point in my career because we end up qualifying that year and uh, we make the quarterfinals right off the bat. So in in 10 days, I make more money playing doubles than I do, you know, playing singles for the previous eight months. And that really was the tipping point in my career to say, hey, you're not cutting it in singles. Doubles is very much suited to my serve and volley game. And yeah, I had a a decent career playing doubles. Loved every minute of it. Loved being on the tour. Loved the traveling. Um, Just loved mixing it. Being in the same locker rooms as some of the best singles players. And it was an absolute ball. I loved every bit of it. If I could have done it till I was 65 and retired, I would have, Fabio. And you got to quite a few semi slam semis, so it was a, quite a good run. Which match, be it singles or doubles, stands out the most for you? Um, I mean, the wins stand out always. Uh, won a couple of titles, uh, five in total. But probably the match was actually the following year at the US Open, 1998. We played the quarterfinals on it was the old grandstand court back then and the day before Kuchera was playing Agassi and I don't know if you remember the match but Kuchera was down two sets to love and he started moonballing Agassi and the crowd was going nuts at him and he wins the the third set but then rain intervenes and they have to come back the next day just so happens our quarterfinals of our doubles was put on that court before them so you know You've got you've got Armstrong absolutely packed to capacity, not because they're yeah. watching us, because they're waiting for the next match, the <laughs> resumption of Agassi and Kuchera. And oh, they were so hostile. It was unbelievable. You know, it was a, a typical New York crowd. I was the smallest guy on the court with these three other giants uh, on the court with me. And I think they felt pity on me. So we had a lot of crowd support and it was just a huge atmosphere to be part of. And we're playing other South Africans. We're playing Neil Broad and Petey Norville. So there was a bit of niggle there. And anyway, we ended up winning. And I just remember the feeling. I'd worked out in my head that the amount of prize money that we were going to win was going to be the deposit on a flat that I was keeping my eye on in the Wimbledon area of London. 
Oh, nice. Like just the first thing that went through my head when we won is, yes, I can afford that flat in London now. I'm going to take this prize money and put that down as my deposit in my flat. And um, yes, cool memories. I remember it till, till this day so vividly. Eh? Do you still have the flat? I still have the flat, man. And it's been the best investment I ever made. So it's it's multiplied in many ways. <laughs> that's that's great. So no wonder that's your best match, one of your favorite matches. That's brilliant. That's really good. It's good. I'm sure it's unbelievable to have a, a base at Wimbledon. Every time you go back, you've no stress. You can just chill out. You're not paying crazy prices. And is it near? Is it actually near, very near the courts? Yeah, it's a um, hundred meter walk. Uh, from the courts, if that. So you say that there's no stress, Brilliant. but you know what? It's like the family want to come over and then the in-laws and then your own family. So so by the by the time the tournament starts, uh, in a two-bedroom apartment, you've got about eight people staying you're with an, you. <laughs> and, and you're probably in a hotel. <laughs> you've, <laughs> exactly. you've signed yourself into a hotel. <laughs> That's great. It's good to hear that story where, you know, I'm sure you felt pressure in those matches as well, where, you know, the money was good and, each round was a lot more money and then all of a sudden you're here okay if we win this it's it's a deposit on this apartment and dealing with that pressure has its own challenges as well no different to players now who it's it's, it's so much about money isn't it well of course and you know anybody who says it's not about money is is talking absolute nonsense my, my response to that is always well you know then play for free don't take the prize money donate it to a charity or if it's a, if it's an appearance fee and and it's not about the money, well, don't take the appearance fee. Do the tournament a favor and show up and play for free. So I never buy that argument. It's, it's all good and well when you've made millions and you're financially secure. But certainly for somebody like me, you, you do think about it on a regular basis. And, you know, you don't always think of it all the time, but certainly in big matches, it was, um, you know, you were aware of of the fact that there was a lot on the line. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say it is. And look, for most players, it's only the 1% who are the top 10%, you know, not even. So it's it's pressure, pressure. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. Speaking of giving money to charity, I only came across this the other day. Uh, Marcus Daniel, is he set up a new charity and he's given 10% of his prize money to to charity. And I saw Sitsipas does the same now. I didn't know that. Um, and just, and again, the fact that it's come from a much lower ranked player like, like Marcus, just, I mean, in fact, I commented on that when uh, when the ATP made the press release. I mean, what a class act, you know, to be able to give out of abundance is one thing, but certainly when you're a low, lower ranked player and you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart and, you know, as a percentage of the money you make, it's probably a, a good chunk, right, relatively speaking. Um, I've got so much respect for that. So much respect. 
It's good. I'll, tr- I'll try to get him on the show. He's a nice guy and high impact athletes. That's what is, that's what is, I think it's charities called where they encourage this. And it's good to see City Pass involved as well because, you know, for the guys earning a lot of money, 10% is a big chunk. Yeah. And it, for the rest of their career, it's a big commitment. I mean, you know, I want to give tennis players a lot of props for the most part. I mean, remember last year how much money the guys uh, made here in Australia for, for the bushfire? I think. That was around $6 million. I mean, Rafa and Roger put in a quarter of a million. So tennis players are good like that. They've been really good at if something's needed to be done, they will put on an exhibition match or, or do whatever they can do to, to play their part. So uh, big props to my tennis boys. They're good. They're good. So when did you quit the tour? 2005 was my last year. Um, I played doubles for the last seven months of the year with Thomas Johansson, um, you know, the Swedish uh, Grand Slam winner, which was so much fun. And um, he said to me, you know, he was still a top singles player at the time. And he said, Robbie, if you want to carry on, I'm happy to play with you wherever we get in. And, you know, as much as you want to play, which was so tempting for me. But I also had a a coaching offer from uh, Mahesh Bupati and Wesley Moody. They were playing doubles together. Wesley was playing singles and they offered uh, to bring me on board which I committed to and you know I was thinking well maybe I should play doubles but it's amazing how things work out Fabio because just two months into the tennis season I don't know if you remember the incident but the one match in Rotterdam before their match Thomas and Marin Cilic were warming up and they were serving cross court not to one another but to their respective coaches and Cilic ends up mishitting a serve and it hits Thomas in the eye and it uh, tears his cornea. And he ends up being mm. out of tennis for, you know, a substantial period of time. And, you know, that would have been, uh, from a selfish point of view, that would have been my doubles partner on the sidelines. And I would have been kind of left stranded. And who knows if things would have unfolded the way they did for me. So it was lucky that I had the coaching job. And... um yeah, so I did that for for a year before I got the television gig, which um, actually happened as a result of Wesley Moody after Wimbledon saying to me that he didn't want to work with me anymore. So suddenly, oh. you know, here was me left in limbo and I was only Mahesh and myself. And that's when I understood the coaching roundabout and that, you know, one day you're hot, the next day you're not. And actually prior to that, I'd had a chance meeting walking from my flat in London to the Southfields tube station with Jason Goodall. Uh, Jason lived just up the road from me, and I didn't know that. We knew each other, we'd known each other a little bit because he used to run Tim Henman's website. But uh, I happened to be going to the station. He was coming back from the station, and this was in about February, March. And, hey, what are you doing, Robbie? Hey, what are you doing, Jason? And I said, no, I'm coaching. And he goes, no, I'm working for the World Feed, you know, ATP Media grouped all the Masters 1000s together and I commentate for them. I said, oh, that's awesome. And he says to me, would you be interested in commentating? I said, well, no, not really. You know, I've got this coaching gig. I'm pretty happy with that for now. And he said, well, if, you know, if you're at the tournaments and, um, you know, you've got some spare time, why don't you pop up to the booth? We're always looking for guys to help us out because we're working such long hours. There's only me and John Barrett for the most part. You know, think about it. So it just so happened that in Indian Wells and Miami, I've got finished the coaching 
with the boys a little earlier. So I sent him a message. He said, come up in, you know, whatever, an hour's time and, and do this match. So I went up there and I did a set here or there. I did a match here or there at Indian Wells in Miami. Same in Rome. I think it was Hamburg back in those days. I did a little bit there. And of course, after Wimbledon, I was down to one player. So suddenly that conversation that I'd had with Jason early on in the year about commentating was a little bit more at the forefront of my thoughts now. And then we go to okay. the U.S. summer, and I do one or two matches during Cincinnati. And that's when um, the head of production there, Steve Plaster, uh, says to me, Robbie, hey, we really like your, your content. We really like your work. You know, Do you want to join us next year and work for ATP Media? So we had a, a quick negotiation there right in the players' lounge you know, as to how much I was going to get paid. And I, I love the security of the job. And I said to Mahesh, look, I'm going to take up this job next year. I've committed to doing commentary. So thanks to a, an absolute chance meeting with Jason Goodall uh, on the corner of the street in Wimbledon, uh, I got into commentary. All down to that apartment. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it all links to that one match. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's So you've been commentating ever since. And tell me, did you have some of the, when you first started commentating, did you have some of the, the great quotes back then? Is that, were you liven up? Were you adding a bit of action to the commentary? Not really. It was only once I'd been in the game for probably two or three years, maybe even longer, four or five years, that when you start to listen to highlight clips of yourself commentating and that's generally what goes out to what started to go out on social media on on highlights reels on news networks did i find myself describing good points exactly the same way oh that's fantastic oh that's an unreal shot oh that's fantastic serve oh that's a fantastic forehand on the run that's a phenomenal and then there's no um you know there was no uh, use of different adjectives so i thought hang on sport mm. by nature is repetitive quite often what content that people consume the most is often the highlights packages. So I'm going to have to think of different ways of describing the same thing, you know, 20, 30 different ways. And and that's when I yeah. started to to get the idea of, you know, just being more versatile as a, as a commentator. And, you know, you start to make a list of things that you, you memorize and you add into your commentary and that list gets longer with with great quotes that you read or something I pick up in a book that I'm reading or it's a Sports Illustrated article that I've read. And and sometimes it's from other sports that I'll put a nuance on that to make it tennis specific. Um, and then that kind of came became my thing as a commentator. Uh, social media latched onto it, kind of helped my profile get better. And I became known as that guy that, that has the one-liners and the, the funny quotes. So. I think it's great for you. I think obviously you've the South African accent, which is a bit different to what you're used to. And then you have to, I have some of them, some of your adjectives here, like suffocates you to death. There's a ticket to the party. That's just an oil painting. I there's, a, there's a few more. It's tennis near the gods. No mortal may approach. They're, they're really good. Obviously you say them a lot better than I do. There's, there's no intensity here. Mentally is a fortress. Uh, like a mongoose on amphetamines. And obviously there's your popular one. You're going to have to, maybe you can tell me here, you're, ooh, stop it. Yeah. Oh, stop it. There, there you go. That's brilliant. And I even see uh, M Mark Petchy's trying to, I think, take you on in your own game recently. 
Uh, you'll have to ask Pets that. Yeah, I mean those Essex boys. You can never trust them, hey? No, he's, he's he has. I don't have them offhand there, but he's definitely come up with some classics himself. He he's done. He's been doing a good job of them, and I think it's only really in the past year, year and a half. We actually had him on the podcast early on when we first launched. He was great, but I I never I never got the question. Maybe if I get him back on here, I'll question him on it. But no, there's some really good classics. I look forward to hearing new ones. No, thanks. I've been been working on a couple during uh, during the <laughs> off season, so. I'll have to to get them in there without crowbarring them in. Sometimes you have a couple, but you don't want to just crowbar them in because then it doesn't sound good, right? You've got to wait for the right moment. Sometimes it's it's a, it's a line that I feel like I can only use for a, a specific player. Um, I think one of my favorites in the early days uh, was on David Ferrer, and and I described him uh, like a walking Red Bull because that's. That was exactly the image for me that that was David Ferrer, right? The guy was just like he was constantly on the stuff. And uh, I enjoy using that one when he played. And for me, that one was reserved for him and for him alone, you know? Brilliant. Each player has their own. What, what What's Rafa's one? Do you have any offhand? What's your number one one? Yeah, uh, Phenomena Doll. Oh, phenomenal. Okay, I've heard that one. Uh, what about Djokovic? Um... I probably couldn't say it on air, but I might get away with it saying it on your podcast. And if I could use it, I would, but I might lose my job. But uh, I'll share it with you. No vacking way. Uh, like you probably get away with that now on 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 Amazon. Not on BBC, but on Amazon, you might get away with that. And what about Federer? Federer, um, I think the one that became so synonymous with him was that. Uh, like a mongoose on amphetamines, he made a ridiculous reflex volley. I think it was against Jocko in a match. Um, and I used that one and that one kind of uh, went viral because the point was so good and the commentary was a little bit out there. And then I think that that resonated with a couple of the tennis fans. So that stuck with Roger. Um, yeah, nothing specific, not a word that I've, you know, Federer uh, just seems to be getting better that was another one when, that, uh, <laughs> when, I don't know if you remember when that line of clothing was coming out, kind of got it off that. Yeah, I try and see, I see what advertising is getting done by some of the sponsors and see if we can work something. I think the other one for Fed was um, waving his Wilson wand. The Wilson wand, nice. Uh, what about um, Andy Murray? We can't not mention him. Miraculous was the one I used. Oh, nice. It wasn't uh, as good as the other ones, but. Um, I loved I loved commentating on Andy. Uh, you know, I watched him from a very young age. So I remember playing against him when he was, so he must have been about 15 at Nottingham. He got a wild card in dubs. So for me, that's been one of my favorite guys to watch because I was there in the very beginning um, and watched nice. his career unfold. So, And how did that match go? Uh, I know we won it. We won it only because uh, Andy's, partner let him down so much martin lee shout out to marty come on marty what happened that day man i remember we were focusing all our attention on this 15 year old kid so we just thought that we'd stare at him we're trying to intimidate him in the dubs but i mean even back then eh, fabio you could see the return of serve was a joke the hand-eye coordination every time i try to cross my partner chris haggard had the sneaky lefty serve on a grass court so andy andy was just picking me off if i was crossing uh he was going down my line when i faked you know, he just glued the return to, to Chris's shoelaces. And then eventually we were down 4-1 in the first set. We thought, hang on, let's just 
start plugging Martin Lee a bit more because we actually want to stay <laughs> away from this kid. And we ended up beating them, I think, like six and four. And uh, I remember saying to Judy after the match, I said, Jesus, this kid of yours, uh, you know, keeps doing his thing. He could be a really good player one day. And uh, she always reminds me about it and says, hey, Robbie, you turned out all right, didn't he? And I said, too true, Judy. Nice, nice. Yeah, ho- ho- I, d- I don't know if he'll make it down to Australia now. He'll be missed considering he was eager. And I heard he was putting in a good training session. Like a, he'd been playing well and moving well. And so that's unfortunate whatever, what happened to him. But hopefully, you never know. I, d- I don't know if he'll make it down or not, but hopefully he does. So tell me, Robbie, what is your favorite slam to commentate on pre-COVID? Huh. The cliches are so true. They're all so different. They are so different. But, I mean, Wimbledon will always have a special place in, in my heart. Growing up as a youngster, we only got to see a couple of tennis matches, let alone events, tennis matches a year. And those were Wimbledon, you know, the Borg-McEnroe finals in the early 80s, semis and finals. That was like the only thing that we got on our television. So Wimbledon holds a special place in my heart. And, of course, staying and living next door to the club for so many years was also very cool. But let me tell you what, the Australian Open has become one heck of a tournament. It is unbelievable what they've done. And I like everything I can do around it as well. There's some amazing golf courses down here. So, you know, on days when I have evening matches, Fabio, I'll, I'll sneak out to some of these unbelievable courses on the sand belt and get to play you know, one of my favorite golf courses in the world, Kingston Heath. I know a few of the members there now, and we hook up, we play some games there. I think it's uh, Victoria. That's another unbelievable one. Royal Melbourne's not too bad either. It gets top 10 in the world. So you've got all these other things nice. that you can do around the tournament. I love the coffee culture here in, in Australia. And quite often, I, I like to holiday in New Zealand before I come to this tournament. So it's like the whole trip is, is such a feel-good trip for me. Um, and it's right up there. And then New York. I mean, who doesn't love New York for two weeks of the year? Uh, the electricity that that event has. So, you know, those three are, are right up there. The French is... Um, you know, probably lower down in the pecking order, probably because I was so rubbish on clay and, and the feel-good factor in <laughs> Roland Garros is a Bad lot lower memories. than the other three. Nightmares, nightmares. Do you still play any tennis? Like, let's say you you get it, your half day off or would you go down to Kuyong and hit a few balls on the grass? No, I've been bad like that. I, I haven't hit at Kuyong and I'd love to. Um, in fact, Nick Lester, who's not here this year, but he's been here in previous years, Nick's always telling me, come on, let's head on down. But if it's a 50-50 decision between playing tennis and golf, normally golf wins. But um, I do enjoy still playing. Um, I've got a young son who um, who's playing tennis now, and he hits a good ball. In fact, I've got a text message through just uh, five minutes ago to say it won another grade five event. So big props to my boy back at home for winning another ITF event. And he keeps me fit, Fabio. We hit balls. Uh, obviously, we butt heads every now and then as father and son. Uh, coach and dad is not easy, man. I tell you what. So uh, I still love hitting balls. And if I have a few good workouts over the course of a week, uh, you realize what a great sport tennis is for fitness because oh, my body hurts. Eh? You realize how many muscles you, you use playing this game. I use, use, your, use your whole body completely. And has commentating made you a better coach? A million times, a million times. I wish I could, uh, I would love to coach a top player simply because of um, the knowledge I've been able to accumulate 
really from a neutral position in the commentary box, right? You know, you've got no affinity to that guy down on the court. Um, it's not like it's your your son or the person you're coaching. So I always think I, I view the match with, um, with with neutral eyes. And then over the years, you've been able to get all this Hawkeye analysis. You know, World Feed used to get it long before any of the networks when I was working for ATP Media. So given so much information, so much of which doesn't go to air, but we get fed anyway in case we want to use it um, in a match. And it's been phenomenal. And you actually start to realize that that tennis can be quite a simple game with as much analysis as you get. I think it's important that you don't overanalyze things because I think you get paralysis with that analysis if if you try and give too much. But without a doubt, I think – would really help me in a coaching capacity because I think I, I get on quite well with people. It's always been part of my nature. I love people. So I think the communication bit is easier for me, but it's just really building up that bank of knowledge through commentary that that has helped me immensely. Nice. That's great here. And maybe if you go, if you go back to coaching, you still lose that job security that you have right now. <laughs> you need to keep boat rolls. That'd be interesting. It'd be, God, it'd, be, it'd be great for you to try that. And I'd love to see you do it and see how all that experience would play off and see you in the player's box and, and doing all that. But we're, we're going to end this soon here so you can get back to your daily routine, Robbie. But w- one of my questions for you is, if somebody wants to get into commentary, tennis commentary, how vital is it that, or maybe how vital is not the right way of asking it, but is it really necessary that they have to have played at a pro level, at a high level? No, is the immediate answer. But I would say in broadcasting more and more these days, the, the old school kind of broadcaster who has studied journalism and is, is trying to find their way in the... Uh, in the commentary world, it's becoming tougher and tougher for them to get gigs because I would say that more and more broadcasters are prepared to take punts on on ex-players and basically coach them into the role and mentor them into the role. Obviously, you've got to be able to speak well. You've got to be articulate. You've got to be able to deliver to some sort of uh, some sort of a degree. And then I think that can be worked on, you know, over time. You look across all sports, Fabio, and it's it's becoming really difficult for for the old type of broadcaster to get into sports commentary these days. Yeah, I, I, I don't look at it from the outside. I think it, it's always an advantage when a player has experience when you can recall. I remember when I was in the semis, there are some players, you know, were in the finals or did well. I know Amazon Prime have some great commentators on. I think it adds, the viewer gets a little bit more knowledge, a bit of in-depth what really goes on there. So that's where I think it makes it harder for somebody who doesn't have that vast tennis experience to to jump in there and get the job. Yeah, what I will say to you is though, you have to be able to communicate that knowledge and that's key. It's one thing having the knowledge, but if you can't get that message across, um, you know, in 25 seconds, be it in between points or, you know, quick and succinctly, yeah. uh, certainly in our game, uh, you are going to struggle. So you can have, like I say, you can have all the experience you want. You can have lived through all the experiences, but if you can't communicate that to the viewer, it's it's actually useless, right? 
Agree, agree. That is the yeah. Just because you've experienced doesn't mean you can do the job. That's 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 interesting. So yeah, no, I, that wasn't for me. That question, by the way, I was just curious of it. Uh, commentating, I I don't know, be for me, be interesting. But how is it traveling? Like obviously, coaching gets more difficult. I think as you get older, your family, it's been away from so many weeks to year. How do you cope with that? Well, the commentary is, is so much better because it's so much more structured. I know exactly the day I'm leaving Fabio and the day that I'm going to get back from any gig. And, you know, I, I've put in the hard yards 14 years before my schedule is, is finally about as good as I could possibly want. Um, I'm doing exactly the events that uh, I'd like to do. So um, I'm in a very, very fortunate position and uh, you know, I count my blessings every day. So. From a family perspective, uh, the balance is right. I do, you know, enough weeks of the year that I can make I can make enough money, but I have enough weeks off, whereby I can spend quality time with my family, and and that's the beautiful part of it. You know, I'll work anywhere between twenty two to twenty four weeks a year, uh, and people go, oh, that's that's a lot. You know, you're away from your family half the year, but when I'm home, I'm home. When I'm home, I don't work. Nice, my my nice. repost to them is, well, you know, how many other people out there get 28 weeks holiday a year? Not many, not many. That gives them perspective, you know, and they're like, wow. And I say, don't forget, I get to, to do something that I absolutely love. And I've been commentating in a generation when we've had three of the greatest players to ever play the sport on the men's side. And on the women's side, we've probably got one of the greatest players as well in Serena Williams. So, you know, I've, I've been at the forefront of this incredible um, tennis era and, and I've, yeah, to be front and center has just been yes. incredible. It's, it's, it's been great. And finally, last question is when we see in Dublin on one of the great golf courses. Oh man, listen, Royal County Down is top of the list. Your country is so beautiful. In many ways, it reminds me from the pictures that I've seen of New Zealand, and that's one of my favorite countries in the world. I'm a big fisherman, so if I can bring my fishing rod and my golf clubs, you guys might end up having me there a lot longer than you'd want. <laughs> but I can't wait we to just, come. We just need a Masters. We just need a Masters event. We get on Casey. He's, he's quite a good golfer. We get him and out, and you can do a duel. Well, I tell you what, if, if you can organize a, a commentary gig, even for a challenger there, I'll come over for that as long as you can tag on some of the other stuff on that. Then uh, it's a great nice. quid pro quo deal done. We'll do the functional tennis <laughs> 2K challenger. <laughs> but uh, Robbie, thank you very much. It was really, really enjoyed that. Thanks a lot. Uh, hope you rest your quarantine goes great and can't wait to hear you on Amazon uh, with, with some of your great quotes. Really looking forward to them. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Fabio. And uh, thanks for sharing uh, so many tennis stories on functional tennis, man. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to some of them. Top man. What a really, really nice guy Robbie is. I really enjoyed that chat. Hope you did too. I'm looking forward to tennis now back on ATP Cup and Aussie Open and hearing Robbie come up with some of his classics. Really looking forward to that. But I'll be back on the podcast maybe sooner than our weekly episode. We're trying to line up some extra episodes now with the busy tennis season kicking off. But until the next episode, goodbye. Try and get out there and play some tennis and take care. Bye. Bye.